Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning. And we're going to read from Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, if your grace is, if you, so if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word this morning. I pray that you would anoint Andy's words as it comes to us, Father, and that you would open our our hearts to be receptive of your word and of your teaching that, Father, it will not fall on solid ground, but it will be on ground that is nurtured and ready to hear your word and to receive it, and it will grow fruit. So we pray for your anointing and blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Should we start with a short video? A man cub, a 
hideous man, Nicole. Oh, go away and leave me alone. Oh, that's just what I should do, but I'm not. No, oh, now, please go to sleep, man cub. Yes, man cub. Please go to sleep. Please go to sleep. Sleep, little man cub. Rest in Talk till the morning. <laughs> he won't be here in the morning. Hmm? No, yes, he will. I. <laughs> car! Hold it, car! Uh, oh, my sinus. Today we are looking at a similar story to this one. Our story today starts in a garden with a snake and a man and a woman. The very first story of the Bible in Genesis where a snake attempts to hypnotize a man and a woman into following their own trajectory and not following God. This snake wants to lead them into death like Carr did, but there's an interesting difference, and there's a broken communion cup on the floor. That's my fault from last week, I'm sure. This snake has different plans to Car in the Jungle Book. Because you could imagine the early readers of Genesis who read a story about a man and a woman created by God to rule the world, and they are given the authority and the responsibility to live in this paradise garden and to extend its reach out into the world. And they're told to do two things. They're told to care for the garden and to guard the garden. Now that implies that there are going to be threats outside of the garden that they're going to need to deal with in some way. And so it is not surprising when you go on to the next page of the story that we have a threat entering the garden. Remember, the earliest readers of Genesis would very much know the experience of a snake coming into their garden. It would be more common experience amongst people who lived in wilderness. And they would know that what do you do when a snake enters your house or your garden, especially if there are children around, you grab a stick to very quickly hit it over the head and be done with it. But this is the sneaky nature of the snake in the garden story of Genesis. Just before the stick hits it across the head, it plants an idea into the head of Adam and Eve. See, it has different intentions to the classic story. The classic story of Jungle Book is the snake wants to devour the human. But in the Genesis story, the snake wants the humans to devour something for themselves. And it is crafty because it feeds their imagination about one thing that God has withheld from them. What is it? Well, God has given Adam and Eve everything. And just 
I recognize some people may be new to church. Some people may, at this point, be hung up on whether this is a historic story or not. I'd say just come with me and see this as a wonderful, incredibly accurate painting of what human beings are like. Let's just go there for now. The snake plants an idea in their head. What is that one thing that God has not yet given you? God has given them the garden, every tree, access to all of the natural resources that they could possibly want, access to God himself. But he hasn't yet given them a God-like status. The Bible, the rest of the Bible, calls this a crown of glory and honor. Because they are infants at this stage in humanity. They are meant to use the resources that God has given them to grow up into fuller maturity, to go from glory to glory in achieving the mission and the goal that God has given them, in extending the garden across the whole world, and standing against anything that might threaten that, and to take dominion. And once they have, they will be recognized not just as a prince and a princess, you could say, but as a king and a queen of this world. They would be given the crown of glory and honor. But at this point, they haven't got that. At this point, they've got everything, but they haven't yet taken the steps of obedience with God. And so they haven't got that recognition or that status or the honor that they so desire and they want. And the snake feeds an incredibly clever scenario into their minds. He says, well, and I'm riffing a little bit, but go with me. Hey, if you just obey God the whole time, if you're just a servant of God the whole time, how could you ever possibly achieve king-like status in this world? Because you're always going to be a servant. But if you were to choose to disobey God right now, wouldn't that get you far quicker to a godlike, king-like status? Do you see the idea? If you just obey God the whole time, how on earth can you ever rise to the glory and honor that you're meant to have in this world? But if you were to choose to just disobey God just this once, that would put you in the seat of power. That would put you on the throne. That would mean that you have shortcutted your way. That would mean that you have achieved the status that you're designed for. So why not go for it? And in that moment, tragically, Adam and Eve do, instead of through patience in well-doing, seeking the glory and honor of God, and eventually being given the status and honor from God, they seize it for themselves. They take that. They take the shortcut to honor that they so desired. And what's the first thing that happens? What is the first thing that Adam does in response to this? He shames Eve. When God discovers what they have done, that they have done the one thing to try and put themselves on the throne rather than accepting God's plan for their lives, and God reveals or asks them, well, what have you done? Instead of Adam saying, look, it was an enormous mistake, I completely 
recognize it was my responsibility to take ownership here. I should have stepped in. I didn't. Instead of taking it upon himself, he points the finger at Eve straight away and shames her and says, well, it was her fault and brings dishonor to his wife. They have a child, a firstborn child called Cain, and then a second son called Abel. And there is a story about Abel and Cain both taking an offering to God, trying to worship God, bringing an offering to him. And we're told that God honored Abel's offering more than he did Cain's. He recognized it. He was pleased with Abel's offering more than he was Cain's. And Cain could not stand his brother getting more honor than he. And so what does he do? He does the most shameful thing imaginable, takes his brother out into a field and kills him, sheds his blood on the ground so that he can be restored to the right honor of the head brother in the family. He now restores his honor by killing his own brother. And then we carry on in the story of Genesis and we hear about a man called Lamech. We're told that Lamech was wounded by another man. Perhaps his pride was wounded a little bit. Someone made a dig at him. Maybe someone attacked him, but didn't kill him, didn't maim him in any way. Rather than accepting that, maybe dealing with it in the right way, we're told that Lamech takes matters into his own hand to try and restore his honor, and he kills the man and then boasts about it in front of his two wives. Again, creating his own status, putting himself back on the throne so that everyone recognizes who he is and how powerful he is. And what are we meant to get from these early Genesis stories? I think we're meant to see a blueprint for how the human race works and how this world functions when it comes to a matter of honor. Now, I've been saying the word honor quite a lot, and it's probably worth us just doing a brief sort of investigation into it. And the reason I'm using this horrible pun in all of my slides is because the Greek word for honor is time. And the verse we're looking at today is in chapter 12 of uh, Romans in verse 10. And it says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor or time. And Honor might not be a word that you often use, depending on the culture that you're in or that you grew up in. But I think in a Western culture, a word that we would use a lot is esteem. We talk about self-esteem. Esteem is a very similar thing. Honor, it's the place on the throne. It's being recognized. It's being given validation by others. It's uh, being told, well done. It's being given that recognition or the esteem from others around you for a job well done, or they recognize something about you. And our world, I think, is folded. We've been looking at this idea of folding an origami butterfly that looks realistic, but is actually dead. Our world is folded by this idea of honor and esteem. People's lives are driven by the desire to get honor, to get a higher status to be esteemed by others, to be recognized, to be told, well done. And I think our world is, swings in two different directions. 
Firstly, there's the self-esteem movement. Now, a couple of years ago, the Dove skincare company creates lots of different creams for your skin and nice shampoo. Um, they released or did a global campaign to try and boost people's self-esteem. It was called the Self-Esteem Project, largely directed at young girls who had grown up and were grown up in a society that said, if you are to regard yourself as important or valuable, you have to look like this. This is the definition of beauty. And they're growing up in, under, this, under these constraints of saying, you've got to look like this in order to be worthwhile in this world. And the Dove campaign is trying to take them in the opposite direction, say, don't listen to external voices. Don't let other people tell you how you should look or how you should act. Tell yourself that you are beautiful. Let your validation come from inside. Be true to yourself. You tell yourself what is truly beautiful. Now, on skin level, this sounds like a better solution. It sounds okay. But do bear in mind two things. One, it is a large corporate organization that want to sell their creams. So they can't completely want young girls to grow up feeling totally beautiful because then they wouldn't buy their creams. Secondly, isn't this a huge weight to put on a young girl's shoulders? How on earth is she meant to know how much she is worth? How on earth is she meant to assess how valuable she is in this world, especially when she grows up in a schooling system and in a society that tells her that she is just a natural product, unlike the skincare uh, products of Dove. She is simply a product of the natural world. There's no rhyme or reason for her existence. There is no meaning. There is no ultimate purpose. There's no big value for why she exists. And yet she should tell herself how beautiful and worthwhile she is in this world. She's been born into a world that's saying, do not take any kind of external validation. And you, you should almost feel guilty if you allow the systems of the world to tell you whether you're in the right place or not. You have to tell yourself that. But where on earth is she going to get those ideas from? How is she going to figure this out? It would be like asking someone to mark their own homework or assess their own driving test or run a one-person race and then make themselves a medal and put it on their chest. And then at school and in our general secular society, we're told that medal that you've just made for yourself, one day it's just going to rot in the ground and it didn't mean anything. Well, good luck growing up in that environment. Being told, don't listen to what we're telling you, ironically. Tell yourself you're great. But believe us that in the end, none of it matters. And it's not just young women growing up in this world. I think to look at young or possibly middle-aged men, there's also a big problem of an honor culture, trying to get esteem from one another, trying to get recognition. And I think this is epitomized by a man in the Bible called Saul, he became king of Israel before King David did. And we have multiple stories about this man, Saul. 
and the honor culture that you could say he created as being the king of the nation, the honor culture that he established. And we've got to be careful because I've heard churches try and move in this direction, having an honor culture. Now, that may be good if it's in the right way, but this can go horribly wrong. And I think we see that with Saul. Saul had been called by God to be the king over the nation. Through the prophet Samuel, he had been told, you are the next king. Very clearly, he had been anointed. And yet, at a prime moment when he should be standing up and being recognized and taking responsibility and saying, okay, I recognize God has called me to take this job, he's hiding behind some bags until some people come over to find him and pull him out. In an honor culture like this, where you wait and you will only step up to the plate, you will only take responsibility when other people affirm you, that is a deeply corrosive society. When leaders only lead when people say well done to them. When people will only step up and take responsibility when there's going to be some recognition. When people are going to applaud you. What kind of a culture does that create in a workplace, in a church, when those who are meant to step up and do the right thing will only do the right thing for enough applause? The second thing that Saul does is, we're told, when, uh, when, there, were, when there was a big battle and his people um, won, the, won the fight, at the end of it, there's a small comment that says, Whenever Saul came across a mighty man, or a big fighter, a warrior, he attached himself to him. He employed him into his service. Saul thought that he could get more honor by associating with big, strong men. Now, the reason that Saul had been chosen to be king of Israel was that he was supposedly head and shoulders above the rest. He was the big, mighty man that was meant to lead, but he was so small on the inside that he needed honor and esteem by associating with other big men to be recognized in such a way. And again, in an honor culture that works like that, you simply swing from one powerful thing to another. There's one cause, a great global cause, that suddenly gains popularity online. A social justice movement that is incredibly important out of the blue. You've never cared about it in your life, but now that it's popular, suddenly you attach yourself to it. And it's the thing that will bring you honor and status. That isn't to say that we shouldn't be caring about certain things, but please be honest with ourselves. Are we attaching ourselves to certain individuals? Are we trying to associate with important people around us just so that we get a bit more honor and status? Then Saul carries on in his life. And to try and reinforce this simply, I'm the leader here, he, come up with, he comes up with the most ridiculous rules for his people to follow. There was one moment when they're, they're, his people are fighting and they're yet to win the battle. And in the middle of this scenario, he calls for a day of fasting. He, as the king, bans anyone from eating anything until they've won the fight. 
to the point that his son, Jonathan, almost has to be executed for just having a bit of honey to keep himself going. It's funny, isn't it? We can create these religious rituals that sound incredibly godly, and actually all we're doing is trying to restore our own status. We're trying to establish our own position. We're trying to remind people, I'm in charge around here. You need to honor me. You see this in families. Sadly, I've heard numerous stories of parents creating horrific rules for their children and then demanding that their children live by these in order to honor them. God doesn't want you to honor ungodly rules. So environments, atmospheres can be set in place where People have to honor their leaders in such an extreme way that it's just blind to the ungodly realities that are going on. And that's what Saul does. He just creates rules so that people respect and honor and esteem him. And it almost kills his own people. And then finally, there's the moment that he's been waiting for, theoretically. There is the moment that would have brought honor to Saul if he'd acted in the right way. Remember, why was he chosen as king of Israel? It's because he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He was a giant of the Israelites. He was a king like all the other nations had. The moment that he should have stood up and recognized his, the calling on his life was when his people were standing against the Philistines and Goliath was their mighty man who was head and shoulders above them. This is the perfect moment for two heavyweights to go at it. And Saul had been chosen by his people for that moment, but in that moment, he becomes an incredibly good delegator. Oh, is there anyone else who wants to fight this mighty man? Anyone at all? Because he doesn't want to risk losing status and honor by losing the fight. He doesn't want to risk his life and everything that he has built up around himself. So he starts to delegate it out. The moment that he could have actually stood up and gained the recognition that God had called him to do, he fails. And again, this is an unhealthy honor culture that he has created. We're told he's incredibly jealous of one man who actually does live in the right way for the majority of the time, and this was David. Because David turns up on the scene when Saul is asking, anyone want to fight that big guy over there? David turns up and is scorned and shamed by his brothers. They say, you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? Get back to the field and look after the sheep. How dare you? But he doesn't listen to the shame because he can stand on his own two feet. He knows what God has called him to do, and he believes that that is the right thing to do. So no matter what people say about him, he isn't relying on their esteem or their honor. And he stands up and he fights the giant. We're also told that David does something powerful throughout his life, which is he waits. There are various moments when Saul is within his grasp. He could end Saul's life. David has been told that he is meant to be the future king of Israel. Just like Adam and Eve, he could have seized that fruit. It was there right in front of him. At least two moments where he could have just killed Saul and he would have been elevated as king. 
but he refuses to do it because it wasn't the right time. He wanted God to put him on the throne. He didn't want to put himself on the throne. And he waited. And then he was exalted at the right time by God and given an eternal promise. God said, through your family line, there's going to be one who is the king forever. There will be a kingdom for eternity through your line because I have exalted you to that status. But tragically, even David gets it horribly wrong. At the end of the story of 2 Samuel, now, the writer of 2 Samuel could have been really kind to David and just cut out this final story because it ruins it all. But it's the reality of the Bible. It doesn't paint people with rose-tinted glasses. It tells us about them. They're humans. Right at the end, David's looking at all of his people, the crowds, the multitudes, and he's starting to feel a rising up of potential pride. And he thinks, maybe if I count them all. And his military advisor says, bad idea. Don't do that. Just enjoy the fact that God has multiplied your people and that you are now filling the earth and achieving what God has called you to do. That's good enough. And he goes, "Mm, no, let's count them. And at the end of counting every single one, a curse is put on him and the people. Because he has given into the snake, the hypnotic ideas of the snake. Come on, come on. Put yourself more on the throne. Go on, feed your esteem. Go on, tell yourself that you are worth something incredible. Don't wait for God. Do it to yourself. And that casts a shadow over Israel for the next however many hundreds of years. Because no king ever is lifted up to the status of David. And even David could not achieve the status that God wanted for a king. Until we get to this man, Jesus. But before him, was there anyone else? It says in the Bible that God's eyes roamed the whole earth. And in Zechariah, it says, The Spirit was sent out to the four corners of the earth. Just to get an idea, are there any glimmering hopes of light in this world? It's a very dark world, but perhaps we might find something that we could latch onto. And the spirit goes round and sees the dove self-esteem project and mm -hmm, sees everything else and mm -hmm, comes back to heaven and gives his verdict. I'm slightly elaborating on this now. But the verdict across Scripture is this. The world is a shameful place. No one seeks after God. Everyone has given in to the hypnotic ideas of the snake. Everyone has fallen from honor by trying to seek it for themselves. Look at what they've done to the planet that you gave them. Look at what they've done to the natural resources in front of them. Look at what they've done to one another, how they've exploited the poorest and the weakest to make their clothes, to make their technology. Look at how they've used up natural resources and then polluted the rivers that you created in this world. Look at how the politicians will easily give in to bribery and easily favor people that will give them esteem. They will siphon off funds into different organizations that would applaud them 
and big wealthy businessmen will give them more honor and glory. Look at what they've done to people from abroad. Look at what they've done with their weapons, how they've fed wars and encouraged fights. Look at how they've chosen war over peace. Look at what they've done with their minds. They've told one another and taught one another that you do not exist, God. Look at what they've done with their bodies, given themselves over to lusts, having sex with people outside of marriage. Look at what they do in the dark, on their screens, watching other people, other adults have sex. Look at how they've treated people who are different from them. Look at how they've put people into slavery. Look at how they've abused trust. Look at how they speak about one another. The conclusion in heaven is the world is a shameful place. Full of shame, dishonor, where no one gives glory to God. Look at how they've used their religions to control one another. And you can almost imagine the son and the father looking at each other lovingly, looking at the world, and the son says to the father, well, there are two options. Either you peel back the heavens and expose the world for what it is and pour out shame and pour out disgrace and pour out punishment upon them for what they have done to you and to one another, or, Father, I'm willing to go and for you to pull back the heavens and for you to pour out that shame and that scorn upon me, and I will take it in their place. And which one does God choose? Well, we're told in Philippians chapter 2. It starts out with the same teaching that we're looking at today. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, now for the good bit, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? The other bit was good, obviously. Who, though he was in the form of God, with all honor, status, glory, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He didn't choose to be born into a palace where he already got a bit of status and honor from people. He was born as a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and here's the thing, even death on a cross. The Son of God willingly suffered the most shameful death in front of his own mother, whipped, scourged, stripped, and hung up on a cross naked for everyone to see, laugh at, spit at. So that in that moment, God could pull back the curtains and pour out his shame and his scorn upon one person instead of the rest of the world. So that that one man could be utterly shamed so that we would not face that penalty. Therefore, God, because of what Jesus achieved, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to ask you the question, how do you honor God the Father? Do you honor God the Father by saying, Jesus is a great example. I'm going to try and live my life in a really good way now. I'm going to go out and try and live in the best way possible. And eventually, God will recognize me for my achievements. I'm going to live so that I can really put Jesus' words into practice. I am going to do the best I absolutely can be. And then I hope at the end, God will recognize that. And God will esteem me. And God will honor me. Is that going to be your choice? Or how do you honor a father? Surely you honor a father by bowing your knee to his son. Surely the thing that pleases the father's heart most is not loads of people trying to mimic his son and be as good as him. He's already elevated him to the throne. Just bow your knee in front of the son. That's what brings the father honor. That's what brings him glory. That's what pleases the Father in heaven, is simply bowing your, bowing your knee to his son. Don't try and put yourself on the throne. Jesus is already there. And because Jesus is there, he honors his family. Because anyone who puts their faith in Christ, anyone who bows the knee before Jesus, because of what he's done, they're welcomed into the family of God. They are given the name that is above every other name. They're given the surname, the the family name of God. We're all sons and daughters in Christ. We all have the highest honor and the highest esteem from heaven because we're bowing in front of the one who is king over everything. Don't try and carve out your own life and sit on your own throne. It's going to look ridiculous on the final day. Just be part of the crowd that worships Jesus who's already been lifted up to heaven. And then where does that leave us? Well, Jesus is creating a new world of honor where he is honored and recognized. He's carving out a new world. The old world, that blueprint world, the world that's been hypnotized by the snake is going to be eventually shamed. But the new world that Jesus creates is the world of honor. It is the world that honors God and where one another are honored and shown the love and the recognition and the value that God has already given them. This is why I think it's so important in the verse. I've put the, the, uh, can we have the final slide? The new world where team, teammate is honor, time is honor. But that middle bit, the Greek, is just interesting at the repetition. I don't, I can't pronounce this correctly. Ho Philadelphia... Ace Alelon Philostorgos. Philadelphia Philostorgos. Essentially, it's saying, love your brothers with family love. Love one another with family love. And I think the important thing is the context that you view as you come in here. Now, if you view church as a religious organization or a, a sort of spiritual society or a club, something to be part of in that way, then it's go, we're going to create these hierarchies of honor where some people are more important than others because of what they do and what they achieve because that's how the world works. Workplaces, you are honored for doing good stuff, for doing the work well, 
for treating people well, hopefully you will be promoted. It's all about promotion and honor. Even in clubs and societies, that's it. Some people are the leaders of the society, and that is where everyone is aspiring to be. And that is the way that it works. But in a family, is that how it works? Of course it's not. In a family setting, everyone has honor simply because of their existence in the family. The youngest child has as much honor as the eldest grandparent because you just exist in the family. You don't suddenly rise up the ranks in the family to be in charge, no. You are esteemed because you are part of the family and that is how we must see one another. Tragically, it's become a bit of a cliche talking about other Christians, brother and sister, but the reality is this is the context that we should exist in as a family. So if you're turning up and using this church in order to tick off your religious box today, oh, I, I should probably go to church, I need to do these things in order to keep good esteem with God, it's not worth it. This is just a family that meet together in central London. And we're so blessed. We love it. But there isn't some esteem ladder that you need to climb. But we must show one another esteem and show one another love in order to demonstrate to one another how valuable they truly are. And remember, this was written to a context where it's likely masters and slaves were both attending in the same house church. And in the workplace, in the home, a master and their employee, there would be a hierarchy of honor. And the Bible says, slaves or employees, you should work for your master. You should recognize that. But when you meet as church, masters, you do not treat those people as your slaves or as your employees anymore. You treat them as a brother or sister. That is how radical this would have been in that society. Now, not many of you are probably here with your employers. You've managed to not evangelize to them yet. <laughs> or maybe you are the employer and you are desperately not allowing your employees to come here. But if that were to happen, we're brothers and sisters. And I just think, playing on the pun of honor is time, time is honor. I think, thinking about Jesus, how did he show honor to the people who were most shamed in society? The women, children, sinners, slaves. Well, he spent time with them. Because I don't think there are many things that demonstrate how valuable someone is more than spending a lot of time with them. That's why I enjoy our life groups, because, yeah, it is impossible to spend enough time with everyone in this room. But if we split off into smaller gatherings and spend time regularly with one another, that is a good step forward into honoring one another and saying, you are actually very important to me and very valuable. And I'm not here just to get something out of you, but just being with you is incredibly important because I honor you. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but I don't think I want to pack much more application. Is to recognize that God is the one that we honor. His son is the one that we bow in front of. And he's created a new family where everyone is esteemed equally. So band, why don't you lead us in worship? And we'll just pray together from a 
line in Revelation. So let's stand. And I would encourage you after this, why not stick around for lunch? Spend time with one another. But let's focus our minds on the one who's actually on the throne. It's Jesus. And it says, to him who sits on the throne, well, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.